At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We stay the course. We are dead. We are all dead. We're supposed to make the world a better place. What happened? I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I know Kung Fu. You either die a hero, or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! This whole thing is insane! This whole thing is insane! 300 years ago, you'd have been burned at the stake. What do all men of power want? More power. This is now the United States of zombie land. This whole thing is insane! Man is even capable of nothing but destruction! Everybody is stuck with the things that they're not proud of. More power. Welcome to the desert of the real. More power. There can be only one. Are you a God-fearing man, Senator? It's such a strange phrase. I've always thought of God as a teacher, as a bringer of light, wisdom, and understanding. You see, I think what you really are afraid of is me. Happy Heresies and welcome to the desert of the real. Heresy shouldn't be this much fun, but it just is, it just is. Even in a world where men have nipples and those warm leatherettes continue to dick-slap us across the face. But Birdie Num Num, it's all good when you get the audio version of Aeombite Live. This one, episode 45. Raw, uncensored, and unfiltered. Just like the truth you've been looking for across all your existences. Supercharged by stellar audience participation. And Happy New Year! And this was an end of the year special, you might say. Chris Knowles materialized at the virtual Alexandria to discuss his new mind-expanding, reality-dispending book, The Endless American Midnight. How did the American Republic become Philip K. Dick's empire? What were the spiritual and political forces that brought us to the 2020 precipice? These answers will help us navigate the 2021 apocalypse, as well as find our inner self and summon that spiritual help we all need. And so many more nuclear insights from Chris in this special show. Truly appreciate those of you who have supported in 2020. I'm honored by your company and expect more fantastic content this year. Just in the next month, we'll provide shows on working with angels, mystic Judaism, 
Young and the Black Books, and more. Don't go anywhere in any aspect. You're only just reaching your potential. We need Gnosis more than ever, needless to say. You won't find this high-quality Gnostic and Hermetic wisdom or guess and their unique insights anywhere else in cyberspace or even meat space. But enough of my short drivel. Let us to our latest AB Live with Chris Knowles. The Empire never ended. And, as you'll find out soon, we are trapped in Mithra's abode. You presume to dictate duty to me? Have you any idea what the cost of your actions is? What their effect might be? Who are you to give them hope? What do you give them? We give them happiness. And they give us authority. The authority to take away their freedom under the guise of democracy. Men can never be free. Because they're weak, corrupt, worthless, and restless. The people believe in authority. They've grown tired of waiting for miracle and mystery. Science is their religion. No greater explanation exists for them. They must never believe any differently if the project is to go forward. At what cost to them? The question's irrelevant, and the outcome inevitable. The date is set. Most of them have ceased to believe in God. Why? Because God presents them with no miracles during their faith. You think when man ceases to believe in miracles, he rejects God? You rule over them in God's name. They don't believe in him, but they still fear him. They're afraid not to because they're afraid of freedom. And you give them happiness. We appease their conscience. Anyone who can appease a man's conscience can take his freedom away from him. And if you can't appease their conscience, you kill them. But you can't kill them all. You can't kill their love, which is what makes them who they are. Makes them better than us. Better than you. We are live. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Desert of the Real and AB Live. Welcome to Mithra's abode in this Black Iron prison in this Philip K. Dick world. Glad to have you, and I hope you've enjoyed my new... Uh, little intro video i think our guest might have recognized the music and our guest is chris knows how you doing chris do you recognize the music um is it from gladiator no it's uh bear mccartry mccartry from uh battlestar galactica the tv show oh uh, yeah i only watched the original miniseries so i wasn't i wasn't too big a fan of the uh ongoing series so okay okay well it's those a good great credits though i'm really impressed did you do those <laughs> yes yes i just went uh online i grabbed all these video clips and i just threw them together so where are they from they're amazing it looks great 
I got them from, uh, I use a video recorder or software called Filmora, and they have stock, like intro clips and all this stuff, and I just... Uh... You're not supposed to give away your secrets. They're you? great, though. I, it looks it looks very impressive, very professional. I'm very impressed. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. And Chris, glad to have you on, as always. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. I uh, got him. The only one here without a nickname. Hello, Vance. Hey, good evening, and glad to be here. Glad to see everybody in the chat. Glad to see you, Chris, and here we go. Indeed, uh, yes, somebody's just said in the chat, Bear McReary, Battlestar Galactic. They got it, yes, and the chat is filling up. So if you have any questions for Chris, please type them in all caps, lots of question marks, uh, and either Vance or I will get to you. And tonight we are talking about Chris's new book, The Endless American Midnight, which I read. And uh, that's all I can say. Woof. If you want to know why we're in 2020 and what's going to happen in 2021, you might want to read this book because it gives a lot of context to the shit show we are finding ourselves in. And we can consider this a sort of uh, end of the year special as uh the apocalypse continues in a few days. So, uh, so why don't we start with Chris? Tell us about the the book and how it came about. Well, I've been working on it for a number of years. People have always asked me to do a book and collect all these sort of random things. Of course, I have like thousands of posts over you know the past fourteen years to choose from. So <laughs> it was a rather daunting kind of task, and I, I could never really figure out an angle for it. But you know, twenty twenty made my decisions for me. You know, I um, it's interesting because I put it together in a very dark state of mind. You know, I I started really doing the final whittling away in this late summer early fall and you kind of you know i'm sure you can remember how dark those times were um and i excised a lot of material that was very rousing and and optimistic you know in in a sort of like let's fight to the death kind of way and i actually put that material back into the uh the ebook because i i felt that you know it i with the passage of time i started feeling a little bit more little bit more up you know uh the gaslighting wasn't quite so intense as it had been over the summer so i just felt like i was finding my feet again and and, uh you know the ebook sort of reflects that it's you know all the material that i put into the ebook which is you know 60 to 100 pages depending on what format you're looking at it in um was all material that i had excised from the final cut of the book and the reason being is that, you know, that was a very dark time. And, uh, you know, I, I wanted something to reflect that. I wanted there to be sort of a um, thematic consistency, like a, you know, a tone set through it. But um, really what, what happened is so as I was looking at all these things that I had written over the years, and I was just, it was amazing to me how many pieces that I had written over the years that were just, you know, this is how this is going to happen. This is going to play out. And it's not because I was a psychic or, or some kind of seer or something. It's just that you just saw these things in motion. And, and you know, getting to this point that we are now and that we've been in since 2016, I think, 
it's it's not an accident. It's it's been a, like a slow motion train wreck. You know, you just see this this train going very very slowly down the track over the past four years, and um, you know, it really started, I think, with the um, the financial crash in late two thousand and seven, and that's interestingly enough, that's when I really started uh, blogging in earnest. So. Um, looking at a lot of things that were going on over the summer um seeing this weird religion you know this weird woke religion sort of spring up this weird what i call puritanism without grace um spring up all over the country all over the world really and seeing that all everything that we're seeing now and we've been seeing for the past at least the decade maybe the decade and a half i to me has been um an inevitable result of disenchantment you know i think that we've been disenchanted and in a bad way you know sometimes you know i always say that like dis disillusionment can be a, a good thing because you know illusions can lead you astray you know they can lead you into disaster but the the whole idea of disenchantment when you when you just sort of whittle yourself down to a materialistic point of view um what we're seeing now is the inevitable result and you know it's what i call the dark midnight of the soul and i feel like as a as a culture and as a society um neither of which i think you can label america as today i think america is just an, another empire but as a culture and as a society such as they are um we've been despiritualized we've been disenchanted um we've been overly focused on superficiality and materialism. And I, I think in a lot of ways, what we've been seeing, you know, certainly a lot of it is uh, intelligence agencies and, and billionaires, you know, playing chess with one another. But I, I think it's also the fact that it was so successful this year is, is, a, is a process, uh, you know, inevitable outcome of this process of of disenchantment and despiritualization i think we're we're as a people i think we've just surrendered our spiritual awareness um you know for one reason or another and i think the the results have been disastrous and that's really what i wanted when i sort of set about assembling the book that's really what i wanted to address and and i said you know up front this is not going to be an easy book to read this is this is a very challenging book but, you know, I mean, even in the print version, I, I, I ended on, you know, I think very positive, positive and optimistic note. Yeah, I agree. Again, for the audience, uh, it's evergreen, but uh, you really start seeing everything pointing to this year. I mean, even sections w where you're talking about Ferguson and the Obama years, it's almost there's a parallel to today except now it's more, again, intense. There's more weapons used against us. And uh, when do you think we stop being a republic or when did we start being a country and an empire? Is it as simple as the, the Woodrow Wilson era with World War I and the Fed and income tax? Or what are your thoughts on it? I, I think that was, you know, it's again, it's been this like slow motion process. I, I think that period that you're talking about during the Wood, uh, Woodrow Wilson administration and Bretton Woods and all these kind of things definitely played a big part in it. Um, 
But I think that the process really accelerated with the first Bush administration and the Gulf War. Mm. Uh, you know, that post um, Iran Contra period where I think there was a tremendous amount of disillusionment among a lot of people. And that's when you started seeing the rise of the militia groups and various uh, apocalyptic cults. Um, was really during that period was really during that late 80s early 90s period when things really started to accelerate and um throughout the 90s you know the clinton era was seen as being this very happy-go-lucky kind of good old days period but at the same time everybody was you know enjoying their stock dividends and so on um they were putting into place all sorts of very scary and dangerous uh, limitations on our civil liberties and our civil rights, um, you know, like the, these terrorism acts and so on. And I think, you know, really the last nail in the coffin was, uh, was 9-11, you know. Yeah. And from there, it's just, you know, from there, we've just like, we've been just living in this, this fugue state, you know, we've been living in this twilight, you know, what I call the dark midnight of the soul. I think we've been, kind of stuck in that since um, since 9-11. And I think what we're seeing now is we're just seeing, you know, the, just the inevitable degradation from from being basically prisoners in, in our own country, you know? Yeah, I think uh, I can't argue with that. I do like, uh, for example, and as I mentioned to you, I love, I'm very happy you included uh, the article on Van Halen, because as you write, he and that group symbolized an era, not just California, but America, an era that uh, Vance, you and I experience. And it's an era that, uh, or a feeling this country will never get again, don't you think? I mean, it's symbolic. Do you, are you asking me? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or Vance? Uh, Van, well, I don't know if Vance was a Van Halen, but he did live in that America. <laughs> yeah. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because, I, you know, I've always been a big fan of Van Halen. And um, the the arc of that group is, is really revealing to me in a lot of ways, you know, because they start off in the late 70s. And, you know, they start off in that kind of like Helmut Newton eyes of Laura Mars, uh, you know, um, studio 54. I mean, just this kind of very strange, uh, period in American history, you know, that's where this darkness is, is kind of emanating from, from New York. Um, you know, the, the, the blackouts and son of Sam and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, later on we had Cropsey. So, um, they sort of were uh, an antidote to the 1970s. They were they were an antidote to the um, collapse of of the 70s hard rock bands. Um, were really kind of starting to fall apart or sort of reach this impasse or midlife crisis, and uh, they just came out and they were just like, you know, shot like a shot like it from a cannon, and they were um, very. Uh, charismatic, you know, incredibly talented. And, you know, what I say in the book is that like, you know, they threw a party that everyone was invited to and they were telling jokes that everyone, you know, was in on that, you know, it was a, it was very much a um, very open and welcoming kind of vibe, even though, you know, certainly a lot of people weren't going to be into the hard rock, but, uh, 
and then it, it it just follows this inevitable arc you know they they get into the drugs and um you know the egos take over and then you know david lee roth is is kicked out of the group and they get sammy hagar and they just sort of become like this very generic uh corporate rock and roll band and you know things just proceed from there i mean dave you know every year just seems to get crazier and crazier and um eddie really descended into uh addiction and alcoholism and and you know he had the cancer and the hip replacement it's you know he was just like it was really sad for people like us to kind of watch him fall apart and again it is like you know it's emblematic it's it's very much an, a metaphor for what's going on i think in the culture that um mm -hmm. But when they started, they were like this antidote to this very decadent and depressed vibe that the country was sort of locked in. And they, you know, things proceed into the eighties and, you know, things are just a big party by the middle of the decade, but you know, they, it just starts to collapse. And I think the collapse that they experienced um, almost sort of parallels uh, things that were going on in the larger culture. And, they weren't alone. I mean, you know, that that section that you're referring to is called All My Heroes Are Dead. And, you know, it's yeah. about um, Bowie and Prince and uh, Scott Weiland and Chris Cornell and uh, Marty Balin of uh, Jefferson Airplane and just all these people who had passed away um, during the course of, of my blogging and just really seemed to me like an, at the end of an era. You know, they, they were marking, you know, just signposts on the end of our, of our culture you know because we don't have a culture you know we don't have a, a culture and we don't have a society we we have uh, a number of uh mutually hostile microcultures i mean it really is a classical imperial state that we're locked into and one thing that you and i discussed we're on the cosmic keys is that I, I sort of liken this to Rome's crisis of the third century. And I, th I think there are a lot of parallels. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the crisis of the third century was eventually resolved by Aurelian uh, who sort of laid the groundwork for the, the rise of, of Constantine really, you know, um, even though he might not be recognized as such, but uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, Rome was very much like we are um, people, a collection of people from all over the, the world all over the empire um no central culture to so to speak of um a very aloof and hostile um aristocracy uh you know just a number of, of parallels i mean they're they're really staggering when, when when you start to um to line them up so how this is going to resolve i'm, I'm not sure but um I, th I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, I think uh, the solution which you talk about in your book it has to be a, a spiritual solution, like you talk about wokeism, as we know, and the witch hunts and all that started with uh, new atheism and atheism, atheism plus, and you you basically record it, and uh, it sort of was a springboard, but. I want to quote part of your book because, again, I think it hits it on, on the head, what we need to do. And please let me read this. It's called, uh, The operating philosophy behind my work is that pop culture is always more resonant when it addresses spiritual issues or wields some variety of spiritual power. 
And the more interesting the particular spirituality in question, the more interesting the art. Hence, Jack Kirby is more interesting than Steve Ditko. Led Zeppelin is more interesting than Deep Purple. David Bowie is more interesting than Elton John. Philip K. Dick is more interesting than Isaac Asimov. And The X-Files is more interesting than Law and & Order. And William Gibson is more interesting than all of his cyberpunk contemporaries. And I think uh, that struck me because you are writing about the fall of popular culture, culture, but also talking about how we really do need a spiritual solution to invigorate our culture. Yeah, we do. And and it's it's a very simple thing when, when you get down to it, is that um, when you have an aggregate of people from different walks of life and, and just all different kinds of persuasions and nationalities, there needs to be some sort of common binding purpose. Um, and really what it gets down to is that everything that is materialistic or is tangible somehow um, falls apart. You know, it, it eventually falls apart. We really had this, you know, when you refer to when I was documenting the, how this whole thing was playing out with the rise, you know, it started with the skeptics and then that um, kind of segued into the new atheist movement, you know, the new atheists uh, that were sort of starting to make a lot of noise in the wake of the Gulf War, you know, people like Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, um, you know, I mean, all these people were not the kind of people that you wanted to build anything on because they're all, you know, deeply dysfunctional as, as individuals. Um, so, I mean, that was going to be a non-starter. But there was this really coordinated assault on, you know, not only organized religion, which, you know, which is ongoing, you know, with a lot of these uh, governors sort of targeting, you know, uh, the churches and the synagogues in their shutdown. Um, you know, we're seeing a lot of this with, in New York, for instance, with the uh, the Orthodox communities. Um, but, you know, not only is this the targeting of, of organized religion, but there's just this targeting of having any kind of spiritual consciousness whatsoever. I mean, you are, you are not in the in-group. You're not in the, the, the group of, you know, the managerial class who have complete disdain uh, for anything spiritual unless, you know, they're, they're being naughty and, and fooling around with some sort of black magic or Satanism. Um, it, it's been coordinated. I, I think a lot of it was being funded by Jeffrey Epstein. Um, it tied in with this whole science worship, this new scientism, and it, which we see to this day, you know, this whole idea of like trust the science. Well, trust the science is kind of a non-starter when you look at the reality and, you know, 70% of of all scientific experiments can't be replicated. Mm. You know, so that means 70% of, of science, you know, and it's especially bad in medicine, is just fake. It's just false. Um, it's It's just generated to pay salaries so there was this multi-pronged multi-layered uh, assault with these groups you know with the the skeptics and the atheists and so on and i think that it one of the great tools that they wielded was was shame and embarrassment you know, they, they made you feel ashamed and embarrassed to believe anything other than 
this very cold, rational, reductionist mindset. Um, you know, if you believed in astrology, if you believed in UFOs, if you believed in any kind of organized religion, certainly, you know, they, they, they used shame and trolling. You know, it was very effective, you know, because you're seeing like a lot of this being wielded by just anonymous people on the internet, people who are just completely unaccountable. But what I think happened is that, and, and what I refer to in the book, and, and, and you've touched upon there, is that there, there was a, a counter movement within the atheist movement called Atheism Plus. Mm -hmm. And it was basically mostly women. Uh, Rebecca Watson was sort of at the front forefront of this. And it was kind of a reaction to the fact that a lot of the, the leading lights of the, the skeptical and new scientist and atheist movements were really just scumbags. They were really um, borderline sexual predators, if not actual sexual predators. And, and that makes a lot of sense when you realize that, you know, a lot of this is being um, funded by Jeffrey Epstein, right? So, you know, the fish, the fish rots from the head, right? So, um, it really poisoned the well, though. And I think, you know, the wokeness, um, there's a, a number of different influences there. But I think a lot of it has to do with mental illness, um, with uh, a generation of kids being over-medicated, with, you know, being on medications that they really have no business being on and would make whatever kind of uh, anxiety or any, any kind of mental disruption infinitely worse, right? Um, these just off-label use of medications or over-medications, so on and so forth. I mean, we went through this with my son. I mean, the teachers were always trying to get him on Ritalin and, and all these kind of things. So, um, but the Atheist Plus movement, I think, was really the, really spurred the, the, the woke thing on because um, there was a lot of overlap with, like, what they call Tumblr Easters, which were uh, sort of mentally ill uh, girls, teenage girls on Tumblr. And there were sort of all these overlaps with fandom and so on. But it just, it created this perfect storm, um, ultimately. And I think a lot of it was just in reaction to just the incredible aggression of people who were in, you know, movements like Gamergate or within the, you know, the skeptical right. community. I mean, there was a lot of overlap between all these groups as well. You know, people on 4chan and so on. Um, it, it really did poison the well. It just created a, an incredible amount of animosity that when you, so when you start to see a lot of these things, these crazy things that these, these people say on Twitter and so on, um, you, you got to, it makes a little bit more sense. I mean, I think these people are all deeply ill, but it makes a little bit more sense when you realize the fact that, um, it, it's just arising from this incredibly toxic and, and you know, violent in, in a sense, um, atmosphere that, that grew out of, um, you know, all these different movements that I've been talking about. And, you know, these movements were almost sort of discarded as, as, you know, we saw the rise of, um, the Trump thing and CAC and so on in, uh, 2016. But, um, you know, I mean, this, this is what happens. I mean, violent actions or, hostile or aggressive whatever you you know choose to call them i mean these these actions create reactions and it just creates the snowballing effect and i think just a lot of the extremism and and 
again, the, the extreme mental sickness that you see, you know, particularly on Twitter, I think Twitter is really sort of the, the locus of this ever since Tumblr collapsed, but it, it, it isn't, it didn't just arise out of a vacuum. It arose, uh, arise, uh, or arose out of just this very toxic and sick, um, period where all these groups were, were basically flaming and trolling each other on the internet. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's well said, and it's certainly culminating today. And on a side question, I have to ask you this, as it's in your book, but could you tell me about uh, the time you worked for the real Tony Soprano? Yeah, I can tell that story now because he passed away recently. Um, <laughs> you can so come out of the witness years. protection program. What's that? You can come out of the witness protection program. Yeah, right. <laughs> So, so what had happened is that, um, you know, when The Sopranos got big, I just refused to watch it. And people were like, why wouldn't you watch it? Because I, I said, I, you know, I was in that environment. I used to basically work for that guy. And it was, you know, those people are horrible people. You know? <laughs> I mean, they're all, they're all idiots. And I just didn't want to gl glorify that, that world that I, that I had sort of found myself, you know, in the middle of. So, so what had happened is that I, you know, I moved to New Jersey. Um, and I needed a job. So I got a job at this restaurant. Um, and it was basically, um, a situation where it was a very popular bar, you know, sort of a hangout place that became, you know, they wanted to sort of upgrade and become, you know, a fancier restaurant. And, you know, I didn't really kind of realize because the people I was dealing with were, were, hired people like you know managers and so on and the chef you know i mean i started as, as a as a waiter and then became a line cook but um what i came to find out and came to discover is that um you know the guys who own the place were um involved in you know this this whole uh society let's say the secret society uh with a very specific pecking order because um this particular secret society, let's just call them, um, owned, you know, owned a number of, of restaurants in this town or, or the city. So um, it was, it was a surreal experience because this guy was, um, I mean, I don't even know if he knew how to write, uh, you know, he looked, he literally looked like a gorilla. Um, he started out as a boxer and then went into construction and, you know, and then became a restaurateur. So it's like almost the classic uh, arc there. Um, but he would um, have these guys come in um, on Saturday nights and they'd, they'd eat down in the banquet room. And you really thought that you were, you know, you walked onto the set of Goodfellas or something. It, it was um, surreal. <laughs> And I'd go down because so they they'd want all these like big bowls of like boiled calamari and boiled scongili, which is snails and stuff. I mean all this disgusting stuff, you know. Like we'd boil like calamari, which you can't even. Nobody wants to eat calamari unless it's deep fried. Believe me. Right. And you know, just bring the stuff down and like be butter and olive oil on it. And it was just like, oh, the fucking yeah, the fucking. I mean, it just like it was a it was a cartoon. It was just like, and and it's funny because the guy who sort of initiated me into this whole thing the guy who sort of told me what was going on um had to you know he had always had to wait on these guys and he was terrified of them because he grew up in this town and he knew you know he knew a lot of these people and knew like they were just really bad news 
Um, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm being intentionally vague, uh, but it, it really was the, the real life Tony Soprano. And, and, you know, the great thing that happened, I, I, I can't believe this, this, you know, if this happened today, it would be like all over Twitter and everything. But, um, you know, <laughs> this guy comes in, you know, the, the gorilla, let's just call him the gorilla and says, um, nobody in any senior positions can, can be anything but Italian. Like only Italians, you know, the, only the man, you know, the manager can only be oh. Italian, you know, the chef, I mean, the chef was already Italian, but like the head bartender and the floor manager and, you know, like everything had to be, you know, the head, even the head waiter, like everybody had to be Italian. If you weren't Italian, you know, you were basically downgraded, just completely <laughs> illegal, right? So <laughs> the, 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 the person who becomes the manager was was a waitress and um she was also a coke dealer she was dealing coke out of the restaurant so it was kind of cool because she always hook us up with wine yeah, but she energy. was also flamingly incompetent so they hired all these peop people you know because only italians could be um running this place and, and you know they ran it into the ground um but i you know i later found out that you know he's involved in like these sort of you know, some people who are fans of, of uh, Gordon White, you know, will know, or um, Catherine Austin Fitz will know about HUD, and he was involved in sort of these HUD offer, you know, these HUD scams and stuff. And um, it was it was an experience. It really was an experience because I had no idea. You know, at first, I, I just thought, you know, because my stepfather's Italian, and I, I sort of knew that world but i didn't know that world <laughs> you, know, you know that world was and it wasn't until you know i was taken aside and said these guys you know. <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah it was surreal man and uh like i said i just could not watch the uh the sopranos for years afterwards because uh yeah That's you know that, that, whole, that whole world i mean those people are just idiots they really are i mean the one thing when I eventually did watch the Sopranos, the thing that I, you know, appreciated, I mean, that's about the DeCalvacanti family up in right. a little bit North, but, um, you know, I appreciated how it just made all these, I thought, I thought it was incredibly accurate to be honest with you. I mean, it was almost too familiar to me because it was just like, yeah, yeah, I know these, I know these guys, I know that world. Um, you know, I, I had sort of like I was always in the kitchen, you know what I mean? And and this sort of had to be told to me, you know, everything that was going on. But uh yeah. Yeah, the Sopranos is very occult. I mean, it brings up Carlos Castaneda, Nietzsche, Taoism, Egyptian mythology. I what mean, the Sopranos? Yeah, yeah. When yeah, you watch well, it's, none of those guys, none of the real guys were ever talking about any of that stuff, believe me. You know, I <laughs> that's mean, what I'm saying. <laughs> these are guys who these are guys who could use fuck three times in a sentence, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I, I, I think that was half their vocabulary. Okay, so was, they were like in the show where it's like, hey Tony, I'm I'm reading The Art of War by Zun Zun. You know, that would never happen, or <laughs> no, never. At least not what I saw. Um, yeah. Oh, so we just had a ten minute conversation about like one stray line in the book. So. Yeah, well, uh, you're like you did say, uh, ask me some time to talk about it. So yeah, the time came now, Chris. Yeah, I, I'm being intentionally vague because yeah. um, there are you know sensitivities 
uh, at work. Um, but really, uh, that was all broken up. I mean, that whole, it was, and it's ironically, it was Rudy Giuliani who, who broke up all those families. I mean, oh, really? families that were running uh, New York and New Jersey. Um, they were really um, pretty much shadows of their former selves by the late 80s. And a lot of that had to do with Rudy Giuliani. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. And of course, Trump was always very connected to them, but that's another story. Mm. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. 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 I see all these, like you said, all these secret, secret societies running around trying to run our country. Well, uh, Vance, do you have a question or any question for the, from the audience for Chris? Well, um, here's one that caught my eye. Uh, Garden of Gale wants to know, is Fort Devon's a gateway to hell? I hope you know what that means because I don't. <laughs> yeah, um, Fort Devens was a, a sort of a major part of my my early childhood um, because my mother was um, a professional musician and had a uh, performance troupe that you know it was real. It was really interesting, you know, because I, I sort of got exposed to the mob there because one of the places that she had a residency at was owned by the Irish mob. Nice. Um, you know, which, my, you know, my mother was all too happy to tell me. Um, she, I mean, she thought it was funny, I guess. Um, but, um, you know, so, and this is where, I, like, I'm three or four years old and I'm playing with my, my little Hot Wheels on the floor of this place. But, you know, <laughs> maybe there could have been some sort of shooting event. I don't know. But anyway, um, so Fort Devons, yeah, so two of her partners, it was a husband and wife, um, lived right near Fort Devons. And, boy, when you talk about... Um, like spooky, weird places. That part of Massachusetts is, is, I'm not sure if that was ever specifically in, in Lovecraft. I mean, they also had a, um, a summer house in Gloucester, which is, you know, right in the heart of, of, of Lovecraft country. And that, you know, that's one of the things I talk about is, um, uh, sort of the unhappy, um, results of, of that experience. But, um, yeah, Fort Devons at the time. So at the time, uh, that I was, spending a lot of time in that area and interesting too, because the shakers, uh, which were a spinoff group from the Quakers. Um, that was one, I, that was one of their headquarters. They had like a shaker village in this area, but, um, at the time it was called the U S army intelligence school. And now they have, um, like a, they basically, uh, Fort Devons is where they have the real life Arkham asylum. You know, they have this, uh, mm -hmm hospital federal prison hospital for um you know the mentally ill i mean like uh, joker sarnaev was there and uh, <laughs> joker yeah i mean a lot of these people so um yeah devon's was a you know, very weird place and the other thing that i talked about back in 2017 and you can make it this what you will but um there was a kid named orion kraus i don't know if i've talked about him on your show before um miguel but he was a musician who, who came home from college and, um, you know, just got up one morning and, and beat his family to death with the baseball bat and then stripped off all his clothes, rolled around in the mud and, and went next door to, you know, to the neighbor's house and said, I just killed my family. I need my medicine. And, uh, yeah, I mean, a lot. Of, so the interesting thing about this book um, is that a lot when I went back, I was like, oh, OK a lot of this material ended up in he will live up in the sky. I, I, you know, I didn't realize how much of it, um, you know, how much of like 
autobiographical material ended up in that book until I went back and read a lot of these things. I was just like, oh, okay, yeah. But so there was this kid named Orion Cross, and um, this was uh, not too long before the the whole situation in, with uh, Stephen Paddock in Las Vegas. And boy, I just, um, I get a real bad feeling about it. I think that um, because of his um, proximity to Devon's, and Devon's now, besides being the you know the, where the real life Arkham Asylum is uh, located, they're also um, their main task now is um, basically militarizing all these federal agencies. Uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but um, you know, like the Department of Transportation or the Department of Education. I mean, all these different agencies all have like armed wings now. You know, they all have like their own armies. And, yeah, and, and and a lot of this work is being done at Devon's, which is like, oh. So, um, yeah, so there's some other bad stuff that happened in my life that um, had a direct connection to Devon's as well. And, again, I mean, this is stuff that I have to be a little bit vague about, but some real, really bad stuff happened um, when I was in that area when I was young that was connected to people at Devon's and was connected to um, – people involved in certain things let's say um you think there are portals in in certain places on the earth well, you know it's funny you ask that because there's a stone chamber uh at the end of their street you know the end of this family street um and if you what was that guy's name <laughs> he's sort of the guy who claimed to be he was a ufologist or was it joe I forget his name now. He's one of these people who sort of come and go. But there was this ufologist who, who claimed that he went to Harvard, and it turns out he didn't, and he was sort of disgraced. You know, he was exposed by one of these skeptics and so on. But he had done some really interesting work talking about the uh, stone chambers and how they were always, like, near a military base and that there was always some sort of portal nearby. So they, they very well could have been. Um, you know, it fit the it, it fit the criteria. In that regard, and like I said, I mean, this is a, a weird place. And um, again, I apologize. I'm gonna have to be, you know, very vague about this stuff. But there was some extremely bad stuff um, connected to all this uh, more recently. Yeah, you mentioned the Vegas shooter. That is still such a conundrum that seems to no breakthroughs or anything. I mean, I'm, I was thinking, well, he didn't leave any sort of evidence or manifesto and it seems the recent nashville bombing that's another weird one don't you think again no well, manifesto no no that's not what nut jobs usually do uh, eight yeah. alleged nut jobs yeah I, I i've been pretty clear all along that i think stephen paddock was a patsy i mean you know this yeah. elderly man who was in poor health um you know somehow could operate automatic weapons with bump stocks or, you know, whatever he was said to be doing. Uh, I, I just don't believe it. Um, the whole, the whole situation stinks and it's interesting how they sort of dropped him. You know, like they said, like the, the maid was never in his room and he has like basically this giant arsenal. Um, you know, it's my belief that, that he was a, um, a gun runner and he was in reason he was in Vegas a lot is that he was um, laundering the money. Mm -hmm. uh you know through gambling um and i think that he was definitely a patsy i mean there's there's just so much 
hinky nonsense about that whole situation. I, I don't know how anybody else or anybody could think that he was anything else but a patsy. Um, you know, particularly, you know, he's, he's shot by the cops. You know, they burst in the door and shoot him in the head. You know, I mean, just the whole story. Oh, no, no, they said that he shot himself. I mean, oh, come on. And, and you know, this is, this is why, like, the gaslighting just keeps getting worse because it's getting harder and harder to um, disguise these things, you know, to get people to go along with the official accounts of these kind of situations. You know, when you talk about the uh, the Memphis thing, I mean, I'm yeah, Memphis. I'm sort of reading a lot of these uh, Nashville. I'm sorry, I'm I'm reading a lot of these strange stories that you know this has something to do with like the uh, NSA, AT and T database there or something. Um, when I saw the destruction that um, this so-called RV bomb, you know, that that he had a propane tank, a propane tank or two, there's no way. I mean that that something major ordinance was used in that area that caused that destruction, you know, and he's blown up and, you know, it's always, these guys never live to tell the tale. Right. Never. So, um, yeah. And then I, you know, in my most recent post, I talked about all the, the Mithraic stuff, you know, like the, that at ts official right. symbol is, is Mithras. Um, it's called the spirit of electricity. You know, and I sort of tied that into the fact that I think that um, the reason why Mithraism started becoming so popular in the late uh, 19th century was because of electricity. I, I think that there was some sort of connotation uh, among these uh, societies and so on that, you know, they saw the, the use of electricity and this kind of technology as being their ascension to godhood. And... Um, I mean, that's why you see Mithras in, in all these different guises in so many strange places like Rockefeller Center and the Statue of Liberty and different corporate logos and so on. So, um, you know, the most recent one that I've seen is, you know, connected to all this is like uh, ExxonMobil because ExxonMobil has Pegasus, right? Mm -hmm. That red Pegasus. So Pegasus is connected to Perseus and Perseus is generally believed to be who, you know, the actual, the secret identity of Mithras, that Mithras mm -hmm. is this kind of Indo-Iranian god of light that was basically um, appropriated for this cult that, that was basically centered in um, Eastern Turkey and, and Northern Syria. So, um, Again, I mean, I, I saw a lot of these kind of symbolism, you know, the, the, the alleged bomber was from, from Antioch and, you know, the, the king, you know, the kingly priest who was basically uh, generally seen as the, you know, the first Mithraist was a guy named Antiochus, you know, I mean, just all these kind of um, these strange things, you know, and it, it was just before sunrise and, you know, sunrise on December 25th was, you know, this big feast period for, for Mithraists. And they, they discovered that there was this um, Mithraic temple in, in central England that was um, aligned somehow with the sunrise on the morning of December 25th. So, yeah, you know, I mean, it's all these rituals, you know, it's all these rituals that I've been talking about for a number of years. And, you know, the thing that I realize and the thing that I touch up on in the book, uh, the, the Endless American Midnight, is that, you know, they do these things because they work. Mm -hmm. You know, for years, I was just trying to 
you know, because since the very beginning of the blog, I was looking at all these um, these rituals, you know, particularly during the 2008 election, there was all this ritualism over serious, which, you know, Joe Biden has kind of touched upon more recently with the, you know, the dogs major, you know, Canis major uh, in the ankle, you know, the ankle of Orion and then Hunter, Orion the hunter, you know, all this kind of stuff. I mean, it's, it's basically the same um, symbol system that we saw a lot of in 2008, where we had Obama and McCain kind of fighting over the glyph of Sirius, you know, the, the, the Egyptian glyph of Sirius and using elements of that in their um, campaign logos. So um, the thing that, you know, so I was like, why, for years, I was just trying to figure out like, why are they, why are they doing this stuff? Like, why are these performing these rituals? These, you know, the, some of them can get really obsessive. The use of symbolism can get very, very obsessive. And I was just like, why are they doing this? And, you know, we'd see like, I don't know, somebody like Vigilant Citizen who said like, oh, this is like some mind control thing or whatever. And it's just like, well, that's not a very compelling explanation, you know? And then people would have all these different theories about it. But the thing that I really started to land on was that they do these rituals because they work. You know, they, they, they gain power from them, um, whatever power that is. Because um, we're talking about a bunch of people who, who are generally rather pragmatic, right? Um, mm -hmm. In their business dealings and so on, and often ruthless. Um, you know, this, what I call the false god of efficiency that they seem to um, have this obsessive um, adoration of. And it just, it really struck me that like they would not be performing these rituals if they didn't think they worked. I mean, th these are just not the kind of people who seem frivolous to me. Um, they perform these rituals because they work and they gain power from them. So what does that, what does that mean? You know, what does that ultimately mean? Because at the same time, these people, you know, even like somebody like a Jeffrey Epstein is performing all these rituals. They're, brainwashing us and gaslighting us into you know having no beliefs in anything but materialism whatsoever so um it's 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 rather insidious you know um because wow. we, i mean we know for a fact that jeffrey epstein was funding all kinds of science groups and and skeptic groups and atheism groups and transhuman groups and, and so on and so forth and uh and then you look at his basically his solar adoration temples on his island, you know, with the giant sundial and that solar temple with the gold dome, and you know, on and on and on. You know, it's uh, the the hypocrisy is rather stunning, I think. But you know, he was a total scumbag, um, so we shouldn't be surprised. But you know, even Ghislaine, you know, when I talked about these these weird alignments where she um, ended up in a, in a place in New Hampshire that would put her in a straight line with, you know, at the Northern end would be the Betty and Barney Hill right. abduction, um, you know, and then her uh, place there. And no, I'm sorry. Then um, Alistair Crowley's uh, vacation spot in 1916, when he stayed with Evangeline Adams in New Bristol, New Hampshire, and then her spot there, and then if you kept following that line down, you'd get to, um, 
you know, the, the part of Springfield, Massachusetts, where um, Jack Parsons' family lived just before he was born, just before they moved out to, uh, to Los Angeles. And the fact that she was, uh, you know, arrested on um, World UFO Day and her connections to Jack Parsons through Ed, her sister being um, married to the son of Ed Molina, who started... Um, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory with with Parsons. Um, you know, it just starts to get very, very strange. And you realize that these people aren't involved in all these things. You know, we're not seeing these things pop up again and again in their lives um, by happenstance. You know, they, they really do believe this stuff. And the reason that I can say that with great confidence is that I've been looking at this stuff for a very long time. I mean, since the 90s, you know. I mean, uh, in in the expanded the, in the PDF version in the electronic version of the book, you know, I include my first major synchromistic uh, analysis, which was of the Clinton um, impeachment, which was just it was just a giant masonic, mm-hmm. you know, orgy. Really, it really was. I mean, it was just from start to finish, and and the the, the numbers and everything from it was just a giant Hiram Abiff ritual. It really was. Uh, at least that's my belief. I mean, people will argue with that. But. Yeah, well, I mean, as I always say, uh, or I quote the saying, uh, millionaires don't believe in astrology. Billionaires believe in astrology. It works. Yeah. It worked for the Nazis. And what you're talking about, it's so right. They want to increase their spiritual power while making us completely not believe in the stuff that we could use to liberate ourselves and to better our lives. I mean, it reminds me when Augustus Caesar came into power, he had like 10,000 magic books burned, not because he's evil, because he's smart. He knew it. if I'm going to start this empire, we need to keep things uh, under control with the government. And, you know, in those days, eventually, if you needed some magic, you had to go down to the Jew or the Samaritan or the Christian down the road to get some real meaty magic for whatever exorcism and so forth. So uh, the the empire never ended. That's all I'm going to say. Uh, uh, Vance, any questions for the audience that you have? Or that yeah, you have? we got we got a couple here. Um, let's see. Which one do I pick? We can, Chris, you can answer what you see America being by 2030, or you could answer a a more detailed question about Pegasus Plaza and Dallas off of JFK's death route. Or you can answer a question about the obelisks that we, um, you know, the, the monoliths actually. Why don't we do all three? Sure. Go for it. Well, um, so America by 2030, I, you know, I'm making a New Year's resolution not to make predictions anymore because uh, I, I just think that things have gotten so strange um, that it's kind of a sucker's game to make predictions at this point because things are not following a logical course, in my estimation. Um, things are um, getting very weird, and, and, and it feels to me like reality is becoming very fungible. and um, not unfixed, inconstant. So I, I would not want to try, you know, to, to make those kind of predictions. And, and I think anybody who would is setting themselves up for, for failure, you know, quite honestly. You know, it kind of reminds me, you know, I'm going to laugh since one of my 
patented X-Files um, metaphors. Uh, you know, so we had the um, 10th season, the uh, the special season, uh, the what they call the event season. And at the end, I had written all these, you know, I'd watch the, you know, it all ends up with the bridge and the, the, the flying saucer and everything. And I, I'd written this whole big piece on it, you know, arguing where the story was going to proceed because, you know, there were all these, you know, I used all these precedents and, you know, went into canon and so on. And then, you know, uh, the next episode, oh, it just turned out it was all a dream, you know, the old uh, Dallas. The old Dallas. <laughs> no, who would, nobody would have, you know, nobody would have predicted that. So um, why did I even bother, right? I mean, it was just my, my mistake, you know, and I told people, I said my mistake was was looking to canon to try and interpret this this thing when when Chris Carter just had no interest in, in canon whatsoever. No. So um so I would not I would not venture to guess. Um you know, I'm not terribly optimistic at this point in time, but uh you know that could change too. Um and then you asked me about Pegasus Plaza. Pegasus Plaza. Yeah, Dallas. so um Dallas. Yeah, so that's a really interesting thing. And I think that code uh, the symbology he wants you to. Yes. So again, we're talking about Perseus. Now, Perseus to me is is a really interesting figure, and I'm becoming more and more interested in him because this is the whole thing with Algol, you know, all this kind of stuff and this kind of stuff. I mean, that's all Algol. That that's what the eye of Horus is, because that's what the um the Egyptians called the eye of Horus was was the you know the what became to be known as the the demon star Algol. Which is in Perseus, but it's in the head of Medusa. So I'm really interested in Perseus for the reason that you know, really, what Perseus is is that he is a hero, semi demigod, who gained his powers through technology. Essentially, you know, he was gifted with magical tools and magical weapons by the gods, you know, particularly by Hermes to. Um, carry out the, the mission. So I, I think the again this whole idea of like why is this why is this symbolism important today? Like why why do these people glom onto this symbolism today? I think it's exactly that. I mean I think that the um the importance of of Perseus is that if you look in the um in the night sky, you know he's killing the bull which is Taurus, which lies on the um you know the the ecliptic, the zodiac, and he's rising above that. He's rising up into heaven. He's rising up that, you know, the, the tree of life or the stairway to heaven, whatever you want to call it, that band of the Milky Way that um, goes up to the, uh, the celestial pole. Um, so he's, you know, he's rising up to that. And he's rising up to that because of, of the technology that he was given by the gods. And I think the, um, the symbolism that we see, you know, particularly with that quote unquote Prometheus at Rockefeller Center. When we see uh, Mithra slash Perseus rising out of the Zodiac, what he's doing is it, he is um, transcending time. Mm -hmm. He's just, you know, the, the horoscope, right, is the hours, the horos, right? The, the, the scope of the hours, which is time, which is, you know, the, the great destructor, you know, it's the great slave driver. Um, you know, we're all enslaved by time, which, which eventually kills us. So what Perseus is doing is that he's transcending that. He is rising up into um, the the northern pole of the uh, 
the night sky with Cepheus and Cepheus is God, Cepheus is the gardener. But, but he's also, Cepheus is sort of in competition with Draco, which is Satan, you know, Draco the dragon. If you, it just becomes very simple and very clear if you look at a, um, a star map. So that I think when when I realized that that Mithras was Perseus, then it all sort of clicked into place because I always wondered like wh why is Mithras you know why was this god so important why didn't anybody care, and I think really what if you look at the um, the Roman uh, version of it, I mean the Romans were pretty well advanced with um, with you know with war engines and uh, plumbing. Um, you know, we saw some of the early uh, steam engines being used. I mean, in relation to the rest of the world, the Romans were, were pretty styling with technology. And they probably saw the technology as, as a source of their power. You know, I mean, all these soldiers and stuff, because they had these really elaborate war engines. And if you've ever seen the movie Gladiator, you'll sort of get a sense of that. Um, so I think that that is why Mithras, who's not actually Mithras, Mithras, who's actually Perseus, is so important to this day. And that's why you see him identified with all these, these major corporations. Because if you look at the major corporations, they're all technological, technologically based. I should mention, too, uh, also we should include the medusa and in persia the gorgons were widely worshipped as uh, goddesses by the persians and satana was a, a gorgon and all these others so this also ties in completely with mithras oh it does and in our modern times suddenly medusa has become some feminist trope and, you know yeah but you know it's interesting when you asked me about nashville because nashville has the parthenon Nashville used to be known as the Athens of the South. Um, and during one of these exhibitions, you know, these sort of world fairs they were always having back then, somebody had built a scale model of the, uh, of the Parthenon, mm, and, um, cool. you know, this giant statue of Athena and so on. You know, but it's, it's interesting, you know, talk about synchronicity. Because when you and I were talking about Medusa and, and Perseus on... Um, the cosmic keys i had said you know right. Athena's a bitch you know <laughs> Athena's yeah, a I real mean, bitch you know um <laughs> which, which is true right i mean she really yeah. is a, a greco revamping of tani you know these sort of these bloodthirsty um baby eating uh sky goddesses I mean, like a really, knot and all those yeah um yeah. exactly a knot tani i mean all these um and if you look at the etymology you can sort of see the um progression to athena right mm -hmm. so um i just think that's a really funny coincidence that we were just sort of talking about that and then in the uh you know the, the her city um you know we have this whole thing with all this mithras perseus symbolism so um that's exactly what i'm talking about you know the thing that i say is that um you know we're in a spiritual battle we're in a spiritual war except for one side is just completely unilaterally disarmed and the other side has the neutron bomb, you know, and that's basically <laughs> the situation that we're at. I think you nailed it on the head. I think that's our solution moving forward, regardless of what happens. We have to arm ourselves with magic and the spirits and whatever we can. But we, we also have to be very careful, you know, because when I talk about magic, I mean, like the magic to me um, is not necessarily like spell casting. 
you know, I, I mean, I, I think that a lot of that, that kind of magic can be very dangerous, you know? Um, and I think one of the dangers of it is ego, you know, that your ego can get caught up in it and you start to see yourself as the, um, you know, the center of the world. And I, I think that, you know, like true magic to me is like, um, you know, something I learned in the ocean, you know, that you learn, uh, when you're doing things in the ocean that you have to sort of work with the ocean, you know, um, if, if you're smart and you work hard, you know, the ocean will work with you, it will, you know, nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of a hundred will work with you. Um, and that to me is, is, is magic. Like to me, like true magic is putting yourself in tune with these forces and these powers. And, um, rather than trying to, uh, bend them to your will, um, bend your will to them, you know? Because mm -hmm. I, I think that the amount of power that you can tap into is, is infinitely greater and um, will not cost you your soul, <laughs> so to speak. Um, Don't fight the wind, bend the sails, as they say. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the tr ego uh, is very, very dangerous when you start to, to deal with these things, when you start to put yourself into these kinds of arenas, if you do have like that inflated sense of self, um, that will be used against you. Uh, and quite often will be used to destroy you. Um, you know, that's one of the reasons that, and I say this a lot in the book, you know, I talk about how like there were just so many brilliant people. I mean, if you look at some of these, you know, people who are involved in, in magic. I mean, John D, Paracelsus, uh, Alistair Crowley, Jack Parsons. I mean, these people are all like super geniuses, you know? I mean, these people, if they hadn't taken that turn, I mean, you know, these are people who would be spoken of along with Einstein, I think, you know? I mean, or or Isaac Newton. Um, you know, these, these were incredibly brilliant people. But I think that they they wanted to tap into something deeper and they allowed their egos to guide them and they were destroyed by it. I mean, literally, I mean, you know, in the case of, of Parsons, you know, literally destroyed by it. Well, they might've um, been assassinated. Yeah. But, but still, I mean, you know, yeah, he kind of ruined his life already by then. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think he was probably assassinated too, but he had, done himself an enormous amount of harm because of his just phenomenal narcissism. Yeah. You know, when you run around saying that you're the antichrist, I mean, that's never going to end well. Right? No, no, no. That's what, that's what I call the toddlers. when we're <laughs> awesome. And uh, we got Dallas and we got uh, the predictions. Do, are we missing a question, Vince? Oh, no, no. I, so I didn't, get, I didn't get, even get into Dallas. So, so <laughs> back to Dallas. All right, so, yeah. so this, this is just a, a recent discovery uh, that I, I had made, I'd stumbled upon. So this Pegasus Plaza, which is basically, I mean, I would have to sort of see better video or something that I've seen, but it's basically, you know, the whole story of Perseus is allegedly encoded into this entire landscape installation. Um, I'm, I'm still kind of unsure. I mean, there's like water and walls and this, that, and the other thing. But the whole 
pitch behind it is that is that it is um, you know the story of Perseus and Pegasus and Medusa and all this you know Andromeda and all this kind of thing. But um, the interesting thing about it is that it's a very interesting neighborhood because it's it's only a few blocks away from Dealey Plaza and you know the triple underpass. And that in turn is only a few blocks away from uh, the AT&T or the Dallas Discovery Center or something. I forget mm. what it's called now. But, you know, the AT&T World Headquarters where they have the giant Golden Mithras, which used to be like literally right down the street from me. It used to be at uh, the AT&T World Headquarters when it was uh, located here. No. And then it moved down to Bedminster and it was, uh, you know, basically right down the street from Trump, which I find kind of interesting. And now it's in Dealey Plaza. So that, there's some magic going on there. I'm not exactly sure what they're they're trying to do, but I, I think that's kind of, you know, it just happens to end up at Dealey Plaza. You know? it's just, um, hey, you know, whatever. Um, Whatever makes them happy, you know. <laughs> but that's the whole story with Pegasus Plaza, and you know, I'm I'm going to do more on that because I'm just I'm just fascinated by this whole conjunction. And that's also uh, I don't remember a couple of years ago there was that sniper who was shooting cops who was like some ex army guy, and he was right right in that neighborhood, you know, right near um, Mithras and uh, Pegasus Plaza and and Dealey Plaza, and um, was uh, basically gunning cops down from a from a rooftop so uh yeah there's something there's something going on there uh, i don't i think that that's probably another sort of a ryan Krauss, steven paddock kind of situation or that guy um you know at the um the washington navy yard the guy who was shooting people up and it turns out that you know he was this he was almost like a zen monk and he had been complaining that that somebody was trying to get him to do something and fucking with his head and beaming signals into his head and so on. You know, most people who think that are crazy, but I think there's like one in a thousand, you know, we're telling the truth and uh, he probably was one of them, you know? Mm, you know, this is certainly Mithras abode. So any other question, Vance, before I have some questions from Chris or? Well, yeah, they keep coming in and um, let's see. Starting to, um, Oh boy, the um, super chats scroll off the screen. But um, someone asked uh, Tim Sarver actually uh, whether or not uh, he's he was confused because he thought Mithras was a good guy representing friendship and contracts and brotherhood. So are these people subverting the good to use in rituals for evil? Is that what's happening, or was Mithras well, not so much? You know, first of all, guy? that's Mithra or Mitra. I mean, it's a different figure. It's Oh, like said, so there was this, you know, religion began that was basically a Perseus religion. And and I would also argue, I think that it was also in part like a Horus religion. I, I think what happened is that so we had the cults of, um, of Isis, you know, the, uh, the ice, which is basically the Catholic Church before the Catholic Church was a Catholic Church. I mean, if you look at how the, um, you know, the liturgy and the. Uh, and the practices of the ISIS cults was, would be very familiar to people today. Um, and you also had the Serapis cult, right? That mm -hmm. Alexander, uh, no, I'm sorry, that Ptolemy uh, had basically created to keep the peace in, in Alexandria. So, you know, Horus sort of didn't have a, like, didn't really have a place in, in the Roman world. And I, I think that um, Mithraism was 
you know, that place. I think that he was kind of combined with Perseus. Horace and Perseus was sort of conflated and and sort of absconded with the identity of this, again, this um, Zoroastrian god Mithra, which is pretty, pretty different than Mithras. I mean, they you know, they, they ostensibly have the same identification, the same origins, but they're, they're not alike at all. They're, they're very much different figures. So, but then the second thing that I would say is that, you know, these people don't think of themselves as evil, you know? I mean, the real supervillains don't think of themselves as evil. They think of themselves as saviors. And that's what makes them so dangerous, you know? They're bringing heaven right. down on earth. They don't think they're, they don't think they're doing evil. They think that, you know, it's for the greater good, which, you know, the four most dangerous words in the English language. Road to hell. It's paved by blue check marks and good intentions, I would say. That's yeah. There you go. So we didn't get to the monoliths yet. If you want to do that real quick before Miguel gets his question. Yeah. Um, that's just a yeah. bunch of bullshit. You know? <laughs> First of all, I mean, they call them monoliths and they're obelisks, you know. Um, I think that, I don't know. That was just, I think that might turn out to be some sort of publicity stunt for something or. One, you know, almost like one of these viral challenges or something. Um, I really don't put a lot of stock in it uh, too much. Oh, okay. Miguel, sorry, go I'm ahead. Sorry if I'm disappointing anybody, but I, I don't really take that too seriously. <laughs> they're not all they're gold, not hard right? to make, you know. I mean, it's not hard to get some sheet metal and a, and a, and a you know, welding gun and some rivets and stuff and just sort of mm. pop that together. I mean, that's, that's not really... I mean, if you have rudimentary metalworking skills you can make one of those things yeah there's one in my county but you know they're the copycats the guys dropped it in nevada that was the interesting thing it was in a setting that was like 2001 right that's what got everybody's attention well the yeah the one in um in utah utah Utah, right oh boy awesome well, again, for the audience, or those who are joining, uh, this is AB Live. We're talking to Chris Nose on the Endless American Midnight. Good crowd in the chats. Uh, as always, there will be an audio version once this is uh, done and out on YouTube and all major podcast providers. And uh, for those of you, please uh, support this show. Definitely get uh, Chris's book and all his works, which you can find at his site, secretsun.blogspot.com. And I've been reading those blogs for many, many years, and they just get more and more relevant. Good stuff. So, And in your book, Chris, definitely wanted to ask you this. Um, I had Jason Horsley recently in his book, 16 Maps of Hell, and he talks about the Manson family and the Manson, the Cielo Drive murders. Uh, you provide probably even more perspective as you tie in Manson to the Process Church and Scientology and other things. And I still feel that's, I mean, of all the 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 satanic rituals or magical rituals that have been done, this might be one of the greatest ones and at least sort of uh, uh, open, expose what Hollywood really was at least to us seekers, but uh, what I 
many things I found interesting reading your articles on Manson in uh, The Endless American Midnight is you write that Manson is uh, a test run for the Joker archetype. What do you mean by that? Especially the Joker seems to be the great archetype of our modern age. Yeah, I mean, this is something, you know, um, when I first started the blog, I, I had said that you know the, the great archetypes of the coming years were going to be the Joker and the um, the Siren. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's pretty much played out like that. Um, so what the Joker is, is that, you know, it's the fool, but it's the fool is the killer. You know, it's the killer clown, you know. Um, and Manson, I think, really played that role starting, I, probably like, I'm thinking maybe the early 80s, you know, when he used all the press attention and the media attention to, to create this figure, you know, Charles Manson as, as a clown, as, as a, um, as a joker, you know, really, I mean, he is, um, he's a character who, um, played the fool. I, I, I think, you know, he played the fool, but he, I think he really understood the, the basis of those, um, those archetypes. I mean, in the book, I have a, um, I had interviewed Bobby Beausoleil uh, yeah. from prison, and, and I include the uh, transcript of that interview, which I think is really important because I wanted to show the overlap between uh, Manson and the Hate Street and the bikers and um, the Satan, you know, the Kenneth Anger kind of ritual magic, and, and then the Satanist, you know, Anton LaVey. And, uh, you know, Bobby was there for all of it. And, um, you know, that's the reason that I included that interview. And I did the thing with Manson because I, I sort of saw the Manson situation as like, you know, you know about Op Operation Northwoods, you know, where um, this whole program that the CIA wanted to um, basically create a bunch of false flag events that would turn the American public against Cuba and mm -hmm. um, justify an, an invasion like hijacking an airplane and all that nonsense yes so um what i see happening in regard to like the manson family and so on is you know i don't want to say an equivalent of that but almost like a um you know a corollary of that that we had um this program that I've been trying to wrap my head around for, for a number of years. Um, you know, I've talked about it in the context of, of MK often and because MK often of which there is very little known, um, seem to, uh, be contemporaneous with the rise of all this Satanism and pop culture and, and so on, you know, all this, uh, glorification of, of Satanism and witchcraft and so on in the media, you know, like, Anton LaVey sort of became like this right. celebrity for a while, right? And then we had Rosemary's Baby, and then later on we had The Exorcist and so on. So what I really um, wanted to key in on is that I think that, <clears throat> you know, it almost seems to me that um, the Manson situation was, was beta testing for this because the Manson family um, ties in, you know, the, the tendrils seem to go everywhere. You know, we have Hollywood. And I talk about this film that was made shortly after the arrests, after the family was arrested, called Ritual of Evil. Yeah. And um, 
you know, whoever made this movie knew what was really going on at Cielo Drive and really knew yeah. what was going on with the Manson family. And it just becomes really obvious. And then they, 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 they sort of, the Sharon Tate character or, or the sort of stand in for her, I mean, looks at the actress they cast looks exactly like Sharon Tate. I mean, it's just like, it just becomes so blatant. Um, but, you know, they were tying in like the process, the process church of the final judgment with that, you know, which were this very, um, you know, people have kind of whitewashed them in the, in the past few years, but I, I see them um, primarily as a, uh, a, a very sinister combination of a, uh, of a drug running operation and a, uh, you know, it's like a satanic brainwashing cult. You know, I, I, I have a very dim view of them. I know people have, you know, people like Peter Lavender sort of like made apologies for them, but I, I see them as, as just bad news. And I think mm -hmm. the fact that they show up, you know, when all this bad shit's going on all over the place, I think is, is, is kind of telling. So the Manson thing, you know, so he plays the fool, he plays the clown, you know, that he doesn't know anything, but he does, you know, he's kind of, you know, the wink and the nod and, you know, he's playing this foolish character, but he really knows what's going on. You know, he really knows where the bodies are buried, literally. And the fact that, you know, Manson ties in quite directly, you know, with, with the process and with the, uh, the solo lodge of the OTO, for instance, um, but also, you know, Bobby Beausoleil and his connections to Kenneth Anger and Kenneth Anger, the fact that he was being funded by like the Ford Foundation and J. Paul Getty Jr. I mean, what's that all about? <laughs> you know, like what interest would they have in this sort of this weirdo make, you know, making uh, these 20 minute art films whenever the spirit moved them, which wasn't often. Um, you know, why would they have a connection to him? Uh, that's a very, you know, the Getty family is involved in a lot of strange stuff that has to do with this. So, yeah, I mean, I just see that the Manson family was, was very much the linchpin when a lot of these things that were, I don't know if you'd say they were being bandied about, um, really became operational. And this, this whole connection between ritual magic and drugs and prostitution and Hollywood, uh, you know, I, I think is something that um, continues to define this this culture in a lot of different ways. You know, yeah, you're right. In one part, and I quote: "It's uh, the Ma the Cielo Drive murders were a long running occult war on the American people, being waged by powerful lunatics within the intelligence community." I think that explains it all, and I think you're right. I, I really, I honestly believe that. I really do. I mean, I, I had wanted to put the um, some of the MK often material in the book, but you know, I mean, it was already 300 pages, and you know, how small was I going to make the text? You know, I mean, it's well over 100,000 words. I mean, it's 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 a pretty hefty book, and you know, there was only so much I could do. And I, re I really think the whole MK often thing really warrants its own book. You know, if I can still continue to uh, to write about those things, uh, which which is an open question. But um, yeah, I mean, I really, I really do see this. You know, for instance, for instance, you know, one of the things that I talked about on the blog, and I did not, I, I think I touch upon it in the book, but um, there were two events that I find to be extremely revealing. First of all, was the um, premiere 
of Night of the Living Dead at a children's uh, matinee what the in Chicago. And, oh, um, you know, Roger Ebert had written this really scorching report on this. You know, just talking about how these kids were just being absolutely traumatized and they were, you know, just absolutely horrified. And, um, you know, considering how strict, you know, the Chicago Board of Senses were, this could not have been a, an accident. You know, you don't show a movie like Night of the Living Dead at a children's matinee, you know, by accident. That's not just an oversight, you know. No, what I'm no. So I, I, I think there's a, a very sinister intent. I mean, I think that was an experiment. I really do. Um, but also, um, you know, when you and I were growing up in Vance, you, you sure, certainly remember this, but, you know, the stories about people fainting and throwing up and freaking out at the exorcist, right? Oh, I, well, you bet. So I, I went back and, and read a lot of those reports, and I, I started to think, like, wow, this sounds like sonic weaponry. Like, the, this sounds like these people were being subjected to sonic weaponry because a, a lot of the specific anecdotes that were coming out of those theaters matched, uh, you know, a, a concurrent program that the U.S. Army was um, field testing in Southeast Asia called Operation Urban Funk, which was the use of um, sonic weaponry on, you know, civilian populations. I mean, I think, listen, it's, it's my opinion, and, uh, you know, I, I certainly could be proved wrong, but I think that they were field testing that equipment at the showings of this movie. And they were doing so because they could always just explain it away as all oh, that these people are just, you know, a bunch of sissies sort of freaking out over a horror movie. You know, it, it was the perfect cover. And the fact that um, William Peter Blatty was a, um, a psychological warfare expert in the 1960s. And also, I mean, if you've ever seen the movies, uh, they're, they're basically the same movie made twice, but the ninth configuration and uh, Good film. Yeah, Twinkle, Twinkle, Killer Kane. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, that's just, it doesn't get any more MK Ultra than that. You know what I'm saying? So, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like Jacob's Ladder about what do you do with these broken soldiers? You, do, you make them do whatever you want, right? You make them into serial killers, soldier hero. They're, you know, they're putty in your hands. Yeah. So um, I, I just, you know, I, I, I think that's very sinister. I really do. I think it's very um, <coughs> disturbing, you know. And we saw, um, you know, all the stuff like the, the, the slasher movies and so on, you know, which we, we saw the beginnings of in the 60s and then they really rose to prominence in the, in the late 70s and the 80s. And, you know, I mean, this is something that I've looked at when you look at these sort of, charts and graphs i mean like the the rise of the rise and fall actually of, of like these slasher movies you know is roughly you know it's roughly identical to the rise and fall of serial killers you know i mean you have these movies that were essentially um glorifying serial killing you know would why would you be surprised when um that would be mirrored in the in the general population, which which certainly was. Um, yeah, I, I, I think don't know how many of these people would would confess to being directly influenced by them, but I'm sure a lot of them were. You know, like the whole stereotype of these guys reading like all these true detective magazines and stuff, which are just basically snuff porn. You know. 
And there you have it, my beloved truth seekers. The first part of our AB Live with Chris Knowles on his book, The Endless American Midnight. If you think the first part was revelatory and intense, you ain't seen nothing yet, or more like heard. Including the audio version, this is a cool listen if you leverage the private RSS feed from AB Prime or Patreon that works in the podcast provider of your choice. So please become a member or patron for the full dope. And to support this Red Pill Cafeteria, go to thegodabovegod.com for means to assist and get the infernal rewards. Or just contact my ass. The alternative spirituality and philosophy of the Gnostics is more important than ever. Might be the only way to counteract the nutsack grip Yaldi Baldi has placed on the collective consciousness of humanity. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self. And Happy New Year again. Hello and goodbye, as always. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.